2: Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we continue our dramatisations of the Titanic Inquiry in this, our third episode. So far we've heard from Lady Duff Gordon, one of only three women interviewed at the British Titanic Inquiry and one of only two passengers. Still a fact I find amazing every time that I hear it. We've also heard from Frederick Barrett, a stoker from Liverpool whose testimony took us to the bowels of the ship. Not a great place to be by Fred's own account. Today we're going up a few decks to hear from Charles Lightoller, Titanic's second officer and the most senior surviving officer of the tragedy. He's a fascinating character and his testimony is very powerful. Lightoller was born on the 30th of March 1874 in Lancashire to Frederick and Sarah Lightoller. His mother died of scarlet fever not long after he was born In 1888, at the age of 13, Lightoller began a four-year apprenticeship at sea. By 1895, he'd survived a shipwreck, a cyclone and a shipboard fire. For his actions in fighting the fire, he was promoted to second mate. He moved from sailing vessels and began working on steamships for Elder Dempster, a British shipping line. In 1898, Lightoller, likely lured by gold fever, left seafaring to travel to the Yukon during the gold rush. He was unsuccessful, and after a little time as a cowboy in Alberta, made his way back to England, where he set his eyes again on a seafaring career and passed his master's certificate. In 1900, he joined the White Star Line as a fourth officer on the Medic on the Britain to Australia run. It was during one of these trips he met Sylvia Hawley Wilson, who he later married. During the ensuing years, Lytola moved up White Star's officer ranks, becoming first officer on the Majestic and the Oceanic. He signed on to the Titanic as her first officer and was at that position when she underwent her sea trials. But prior to sailing, the addition of Henry Tingle Wilde as chief officer caused the senior officers to each move down a rung, meaning that Lightoller became the second officer. During his testimony, Lightoller details the voyage as it progressed, as well as the officers' watches and the ice warnings that were coming through the new Marconi radio system. On the night of the 14th of April, Lightoller recalled how the temperature had dropped significantly. He ordered that the freshwater stores be looked after to prevent their freezing. He'd retired to his cabin when at 11.40pm he felt a vibration which caused him to investigate. He left his cabin and met 3rd Officer Pittman on deck. But seeing nothing and noting the lack of alarm on the bridge, he returned to his room and waited there. Not long after, 4th Officer Boxall... Appeared and called him to the bridge. During the subsequent evacuation of the ship, Lightoller oversaw loading of the portside boats and strictly adhered to women and children only when loading the boats. Major Arthur Pukin, owing to his nautical experience, was the only male that Lightoller allowed in a boat on the port side. Lightoller was later criticized for this action as well as not filling lifeboats to capacity. Lightoller explained his concern that the boats might buckle and how, as the sinking progressed, he looked down the grand staircase well to see the water progressing up the decks. And he then began placing larger numbers in each boat before sending them away. Just before the sinking, Titanic took what was described as a plunge. Lightoller, who had been cutting the stays for one of the collapsible boats on the roof of the officer's house, dove into the water and attempted to swim away from the now quickly sinking ship. At one point he was pulled underneath the water by the inflow into the vent in front of the forward funnel. He was held against the grating when a gust of warm air from inside the vessel broke him free, enabling him to swim away. He found himself near the overturned lifeboat B, which he climbed on, and assumed command. Over the course of the following hours, he would have the other people who climbed on the boat shift their positions in order to prevent it sinking from under them. During the wreck commissioner's inquiry, Lightoller was called to the stand three times over the same number of days and was asked 2,951 questions. He'd also answered 1,345 questions during the US Senate inquiry. Following the sinking, Lytola continued seafaring. During the First World War, he was called up to the Royal Navy and served in various capacities, including captain on several patrol boats and destroyers. Following the war, like other surviving Titanic officers, he found little opportunity for command or advancement with the White Star Line, so resigned the company and began several other ventures, including land speculation with his wife. In 1929, he purchased Sundowner, a private motor yacht that was commissioned by the Admiralty to use the vessel to gather intelligence about German naval installations along the German coast. Following the outbreak of the Second World War, when the German military had overrun France and pinned many British troops at Dunkirk, Leitholler, with his son and a young sea cadet, sailed Sundowner to the coast of Dunkirk and repatriated 127 British troops. He passed away at the age of 78 on the 8th of December 1952. So now come with me to the Rec Commissioners Court, Scottish Drill Hall, Buckingham Gate, Westminster, in May 1912. It's the 11th day of the inquiry. Charles Lightholler has taken his seat and Sir Rufus Isaacs, the Attorney-General, has risen to his feet.
3: You are Mr Charles Herbert Lightholler, I think. Yes. Were you second officer on the Titanic? I was. How long have you been in the White Star Company's employ? Nearly 12 and a half years. Sailing with that company across the Atlantic many times is most of your experience in the North Atlantic. Most, yes. Up to the time this vessel started a voyage from Southampton, what was the greatest speed she had attained in practice? That is from Belfast, Road to Southampton. We averaged about 18 knots. That is the average. Do you know what the greatest she had got up to? Perhaps 18 and a half. I do not think she got much higher than that. Just give me, if you will, the arrangement about the watches between the chief officer, the first officer and yourself. I suppose you would count as the three senior officers? Yes, exactly. How was that? The chief officer had from two till six a.m. and p.m. The second officer... That is you? Yes, myself. The second officer relieved the chief at six o'clock and was on deck until ten. Six till ten a.m. and p.m. The first officer was on deck from ten till two a.m. and p.m. We will go to Sunday, April 14th. Your first watch, the morning watch. Uh, would that be from six to ten, as I follow you? Yes. Then, having completed that watch, did you come to the bridge again about luncheon time? Yes. Do you remember Captain Smith showing you something during this time? Yes. Just tell us what it was. Captain Smith came on the bridge during the time I was relieving Mr Murdoch. In his hands he had a wireless message, a Marconigram. He came across the bridge and, holding it in his hands, told me to read it. Did you see whether it was about ice? It had reference to ice. I think this is the message and perhaps I can read it to the gentleman and he will tell us if it sounds like it. Uh, We have independent evidence here of a message being sent from the Coronia, westbound steamers reporting bergs, growlers and filled ice in 42 north and from 49 to 51 west. I think that is the message that I referred as near as I can remember. So far as your knowledge goes, is that the first information as to ice which you had heard as being received by the Titanic? That is the first I have any recollection of. And now, what did you notice about the speed of your vessel? As far as I could tell, her speed was normal. Uh, Were they
4: telegraphed at full speed ahead? At full speed. What do you mean by normal? Full speed. What is full speed? Can can you give me how many knots? We were steaming as near as I can tell
3: from what I can remember of the revolutions. I, I believe there were 75. I think that works out at about 21 and a half knots the ship was steaming. And who would be on the bridge? Is it one or two of the junior officers would be on the bridge with you? Two junior officers on watch at all times. And there would be a quartermaster at the wheel? And a standby quartermaster. Another quartermaster standing by. Exactly. And there will be two lookout men in the crow's nest? At all times. And what was the practice in the Titanic as far as this voyage is concerned about having a lookout man anywhere else? In anything but clear weather we carry extra lookouts. But uh, where do you put them? If the weather is fine, that is to say if the sea allows it, we place them near the stem head. And when the weather does not allow us placing them at the stem head, then probably on the bridge. And as far as your watch was concerned, six to ten on the evening of April the 14th, was there any lookout except the two men in the crow's nest? No. What was the weather? Perfectly clear and fine. Um, Of course the sea was calm. Comparatively smooth. Could you see the stars? Perfectly clear. There was not a cloud in the sky. And there was no moon, I think? Uh, No moon. And when you had taken the ship over from Mr Wild and gathered this information, I I, I think you gave some directions to one of the junior officers. I directed the sixth officer to let me know at what time we should reach the vicinity of ice. The junior officer reported to me about 11 o'clock. And that would involve his making some calculations, of course? Yes.
4: In your opinion, when in point of fact would you have reached the vicinity of the ice? I roughly figured out about half past nine. Then had Moody made a mistake?
3: I should not say a mistake. Only he probably had not noticed the 49 degree wireless. There may have been others, and he may have made his calculations from one of the other Marconigrams. When you got this time suggested to you at 11 o'clock... As I follow you, you made the calculation in your head? Exactly. Y- you did not make a calculation on paper? None whatever. Oh, I dare say you can make the calculation back for us now. When the Titanic did strike the iceberg, it was longitude 50 degrees, 40 minutes west. So she had passed the 49th meridian and passed the 50th? Exactly. If she struck the iceberg at 50 degrees 14 west at eleven forty, twenty 20 minutes to 12, given her speed, is it not difficult to say approximately when she passed the 49th meridian? It works out somewhere about half past nine. That is what I thought. Then, of course, that was very important for you as you were on the bridge and in charge until ten o'clock. Yes. And being on the bridge and in charge, would it be your responsibility to determine any question about reduction of speed? If I thought it necessary, I should advise the commander. But you thought the weather was clear enough and you could see? Perfectly clear.
4: What is a growler?
3: A growler is really the worst form of ice... It's a larger berg melted down, or I might say a solid body of ice, which is lowered down to the water and more difficult to see than field ice, pack ice, flow ice or icebergs.
4: You did not know, but there might be growlers there. They are not nearly so visible as an iceberg, are they?
3: No, naturally they will not be. That is to distinguish them from icebergs with regard to size.
4: A growler, I understand, is an iceberg which is very much submerged in the water and shows very little on the surface. Is that so? Their relative amounts above water and below are naturally the same. Yes, they are. But an iceberg is a mountain of ice standing up out of the water. Exactly. A growler is the same thing, but instead of standing high out of the water, it stands a very little way out of the water. Is that so? Yes, that is so, my lord. Now... Can you see a growler ahead of you nearly so well as you could see an iceberg? No, my lord. Now, when you were in the vicinity of the ice, as you believed you were at 9.30, entering the dangerous field, did it not occur to you that you might run foul of a growler?
3: No, my lord. I judged I should see it with sufficient distinctness to define it, any ice that was large enough to damage the ship. Uh, 21 knots is about 700 yards a minute. Is your view that you could see a growler at a safe distance at night time going at that pace? I judged that I could see a growler at a mile and a half, more probably two miles.
4: Is this leading to the suggestion that the lookout men are to blame? Not at all, my lord.
3: I must explain this if you will allow me. I am glad he should add it. Now, uh, tell us what you were going to say. In the event of meeting ice, there are many things we look for. In the first place, a slight breeze. Of course, the stronger the breeze, the more visible the ice will be, or rather the breakers on the ice. Therefore, at any time when there is a slight breeze, you will always see at night time a phosphorescent line around a berg, growler or whatever it may be. The slight swell, which we invariably look for in the North Atlantic, causes the same effect, the break of the base of the berg, so showing a phosphorescent glow. All bergs, all ice, more or less, have a crystallised side. It is white? Yes. It has been crystallised through exposure, and that in all cases will reflect a certain amount of light, what is termed ice-blink. And that ice blink from a fairly large berg you will frequently see before the berg comes above the horizon. Now, let me follow. Was there any breeze on this night? When I left the deck at ten o'clock, there was a slight breeze. Oh, no, pardon me, no, I I take that back. Uh, No, it was calm, perfectly calm. Do you agree from that experience that this was an occasion when it was an absolutely flat sea? Absolutely flat.
4: Not in fact, but to all appearance.
3: In fact, my lord. You have told me about the speed and about the direction. Now there is a third thing. What about the temperature? The temperature had fallen considerably. As a matter of fact, I happen to know exactly how much, because when I relieved Mr Murdoch after dinner, he made the remark to me that the temperature had dropped four degrees whilst I was away at dinner. Does that not indicate anything at all as regards the probable presence of ice? Absolutely no indication whatever. Then I may take it that that fact of the temperature did not itself make you any more cautious? Oh, not the slightest. When we discussed the indications of ice, I remember saying, in any case there will be a certain amount of reflected light from the bergs. He said, oh yes, there will be a certain amount of reflected light. I said, or, or he said... But blue was said between us. Even though the blue side of the berg was towards us, probably the outline, the white outline would give us sufficient warning that we should be able to see it at a good distance. And as far as we could see, we should be able to see it. Of course, it was just with regards to the possibility of the blue side being towards us. And if that did happen to be turned with the purely blue side towards us, there would still be the white outline. When you handed over the ship at the end of your watch to Mr Murdoch, just tell us as carefully and as fully as you can what was the report you made to Mr Murdoch. What was it you passed along to him? I should give him the course the ship was steering by standard compass. I mentioned the temperature. I think he mentioned the temperature first. He came on deck in his overcoat and said it's pretty cold. I said, yes, it's freezing. I said something about we might be up around the ice at any time now, as far as I could remember. I cannot remember the exact words, but suggested we should be naturally around the ice. I passed the word on to him. Of course, I knew we were up to 49 degrees by then, roughly half past nine, that ice had been reported. Uh, did you go to your room and turn in? Yes. And had you turned in at the time of the impact, the collision? Yes. I mean, was your light out? Yes, my light was out, but I was still awake. You were still awake? Yes. And if you were awake, you felt something, I suppose. Just describe to us what it was you felt. It was best described as a jar and a grinding sound. There was a slight jar followed by this grinding sound. It struck me we'd struck something and then, thinking it over, it was feeling as though she may have hit something with her propellers... And on second thoughts, I thought perhaps she'd struck some obstruction with a propeller and stripped off the blades. There was a slight jar, followed by a grinding, a,
4: a slight bumping. You could not tell? From what direction the sound came?
3: No, my lord. Naturally, I thought it was from forward.
4: I understand you to say you thought it was the propellers.
3: On second thoughts, it flashed through my mind that possibly it was a piece of wreckage or something. A piece of ice had been struck by the propeller blade which might have given a similar feeling to the ship. As to this uh, grinding noise which you speak of which followed the slight shock... Can you give us any help at all how long the grinding sound or sensation continued? Well, I should say a matter of a couple of seconds, perhaps a a few seconds, but very few. I understand it was not violent at all. Oh, no, not at all.
4: You were lying down at the time?
3: Yes, my lord. i just switched the light out. I was going to sleep. I'd switched the light out and turned over to go to sleep. But you were awake... I was awake. When this occurred, your mind naturally searched for a probable cause. Uh, Did you think of ice? I did. Just tell us what you did, in order. I lay there for a few moments, it might have been a few minutes, and then feeling the engines had stopped, I got up. And did you go to the bridge? Not exactly the bridge, I went out on the deck. The bridge, you know, is on the same level. Uh, Onto the boat deck? Onto the boat deck on the port side. And what did you find was the condition of things? Everything seemed normal. Uh, Was the ship going full speed ahead? Oh, no, I mean the conditions on the bridge. Uh, It was my fault. What did you find the position of the ship? I, first of all, looked forward to the bridge and everything seemed quiet there. I could see the first officer standing on the footbridge keeping the lookout. I then walked across to the side, I saw the ship had slowed down, or that is to say, was proceeding slowly through the water. And this is all on the port side? Did you see any iceberg? No. Uh, of course. If the iceberg passed on the starboard side of the vessel, you were on the opposite side? Yes. And when you came out on deck, was the ship already stopped or slowing down through the water? She was proceeding slowly, a matter of perhaps six knots or something like that. Well, just, just tell us what you did. After looking over the side and seeing the bridge, I went back to the quarters and crossed over to the starboard side. I looked out of the starboard door and I could see the commander standing on the bridge in just the same manner as I'd seen Mr Murdoch, just the outline. I could not see which was which in the dark. I did not go out on the deck again on the starboard side. It was pretty cold and I went back to my bunk and turned in. And at that time you thought nothing was the matter? I did not think it was anything serious.
4: Well, you did think, as I understand, that she had fouled something with her propeller blades. Either bumped something or fouled something. Was that not serious? No. You thought it was safe enough to turn in? Oh, quite.
3: How long were you in your room after that, before you did turn out? It's very difficult to say. I should say roughly about half an hour, perhaps. It might have been longer, it might have been less. Did you uh, go to sleep?
4: Oh, no. What on earth were you doing? Were you lying down in your bunk, listening to the noises outside? There
3: were no noises. I turned in my bunk, covered myself up and waited for somebody to come along and tell me if they wanted me. Time is very difficult to calculate, especially when you are trying to go to sleep. But seriously... Do you think it was half an hour? That I was in my bunk after that? Yes. Well, I did not think it was half an hour, but we have been talking this matter over a great deal and I judge it is half an hour because it was Mr Boxall who came to inform me afterwards we had struck the ice. And previously to him coming to inform me, as you will find out in his evidence, he'd been a considerable way around the ship on various duties which must have taken him a good while. It might be less, it might be quarter of an hour you will be able to form your judgement. Is he the fourth officer? Yes. It was Mr Boxall who came to your room and gave you the information? Yes. What was it he told you? He just came in and quietly remarked, you know we've struck an iceberg. I said, I know we've struck something. He then said, the water's up to F deck in the mail room. When you got that news, it did not take you very long to turn out for the second time. No, it did not. Uh, Did you go on deck? After dressing. Now, just tell us what you saw and what you found was the condition of things there. At this time, the steam was roaring off. Then there is an order from the Chief Officer that you should see to the stripping of the covers off the boats. Yes. Uh, Did you do that? Yes. And at that time, had any of the boats had their covers stripped or had you to begin it? No, with the exception of the emergency boats. And did you get hands to help you in that work? Yes, I commenced myself, and then as the hands turned up, I told them, off to the boats. Up to this time, had you noticed whether the ship had got any list? Not to my knowledge. No list whatever, so far as I know. Up to this time, had you noticed whether she showed a tendency to drop by the head? No. She was on an even keel, as far as you know? Yes. How long did that state of things continue? When was it you did first notice either a list or that she was down by the head? Very shortly afterwards, I noticed she was down by the head when I was by number six boat. When I left number four and went to number six, she was distinctly down by the head. I think it was while working out that boat, it was noticed that she had a pretty heavy list to port. I remember what you said yesterday as to what you were told when you were in your bunk that the water was up to F-deck. You knew it was a very serious state of things? Yes, I knew it was serious. And I suppose you realised, I do not know whether you did, but I suppose you realised that the ship was taking in more and more water as you were attending to these boats? Yes, my lord. And yet I did not think at the time that the ship was going down. Uh, Did you get the collapsible boat swung out? Yes, swung out and loaded up. Was it a piece of work that was uh, easily done? Nothing very difficult about it, except you just work your davits in. It's not difficult, it takes a little time to swing the davits and hook on. Was she filled? Uh, What happened? We had very great difficulty in filling her with women. As far as I remember, she was eventually filled, but we experienced considerable difficulty. Two or three times we had to wait and call out for women. In fact, I think on one, perhaps two occasions, someone standing close to the boat said, oh, there are no more women. And with that, several men commenced to climb in. Just then, or a moment afterwards, whilst they were still climbing in, someone sang out on the deck, here are a couple more. Naturally, I judged they were women. That meant a couple more women? Yes, and the men got out of the boat again and put the women in. If I'm quite right, I think that happened on two occasions. You say the men got out of the boat. Do you mean men passengers? I really could not say. They gave up their places? Yes. When that boat was filled, she contained some men and some women, of course. No men that I knew of. Ultimately, she was filled with women. The collapsible boat. Yes, I believe it was a new boat where a couple of Filipinos or Chinese got in. They stowed away under the thwarts or something. But for that, there were no men except crew, except the men I ordered in. When that boat was filled, ready to go away, as far as you could ascertain, were there any other women thereabouts? None whatever. I'm under the impression that I could have put more in that boat and could have put some men in but I did not feel justified in giving an order for men to go into the boat as it was the last boat, as far as I knew, leaving the ship and I thought it better to get her into the water safely with the number she had in or in other words, I I did not want the boat to be rushed. Uh, Were there any men passengers about? There were plenty of people about, no doubt men passengers. Was good order... Being maintained then? Splendid. And was there any attempt to rush that boat at all? None whatever, but the men commenced to climb in when they heard there were no more women. When you were filling that collapsible boat and preparing it to go, had you noticed that the water was over the bows of the ship? I could not say over the bows of the ship, but I could see it coming up the stairway. You noticed that? Yes. And other people on the boat deck could see that too? If they looked down the stairway, yes. There was good order, you say, up to the last? Splendid. Then tell us your last minute or two on the ship. What did you do? I went across to the starboard side of the officer's quarters, on top of the officer's quarters, to see if I could do anything on the starboard side. Well, I could not. And coming over to the starboard side on the roof of the officer's quarters... Could you see any other officers? I saw the first officer working at the falls of the starboard emergency boat, obviously with the intention of overhauling them and hooking onto the collapsible boat on the side. Were there others with him, helping? There were a number around there helping. Then what happened? Well, she seemed to take a bit of a dive, and I just walked into the water. uh, Had you got a life belt? I had. And... You had better just tell us what your own experiences were. What happened to you? Well, I was swimming out towards the head of the ship, the crow's nest. I could see the crow's nest. The water was intensely cold, and one's natural instinct was to try to get out of the water. I do not know whether I swam to the foremast with that idea, but of course I soon realised it was rather foolish, so I turned to swim across clear of the ship to starboard. The next thing I knew, I was up against the blower on the fore part of the funnel. There was a grating. The water rushing down held me there a little while. The water rushing down this blower. Did it drag you against it? It held me against the blower. Uh, against the mouth of it? Yes. After a while, there seemed to be a rush of air from down below, and I was blown away from it. Air coming out of the ship, as it were? yes. And had you been dragged below the surface? Yes. Uh, Have you any idea? Were you dragged a long way down? It seemed a good long while. I do not suppose it was many moments, though. Then you
4: came up to the surface? Yes. Can you swim with these life belts on?
3: There is no necessity to swim. You can paddle. They hold you high in the water.
4: You cannot sink, I understand, but can you swim?
3: You can paddle along. You cannot swim because you cannot get your breast deep down in the water.
4: You cannot swim as well with a life belt as you can without?
3: Not nearly. I may say that I've heard since that the gymnasium instructor refused to put
4: one on for that reason. He could swim far better and get clear of people and things without it. The man who can swim well is far better off without the life belt.
3: As far as the swimming goes, except that if you're taken below the surface it brings you up much quicker. When you came up, uh, where did you find yourself? I found myself alongside of the collapsible boat which I'd previously launched on the port side, the one I'd thrown on the boat deck. And uh, were you able to make use of it, to clamber onto it? Not at that time, I I, I just held onto something, a, a piece of rope or something and uh, was there for a little while. Then the forward funnel fell down. It fell within three or four inches of the boat. It lifted the boat bodily and threw her about twenty foot clear of the ship, as near as I could judge. Did you notice when you came up to the surface and found this collapsible boat near you whether the whole of the ship had disappeared? Oh, no. Uh, She had not? No. The forward funnel was still there. All the funnels were above the water. I I do not know whether you can help us at all in describing what happened to the ship. You were engaged and had other things to think about, but what did happen to the ship? Can you tell us at all? Are you referring to the reports of the ship breaking in two? Yes. It's utterly untrue. The ship did
4: not and could not have broken in two. If you saw it, if you saw what happened, tell us what it was. After the funnel
3: fell... There was some little time elapsed. I do not know exactly what came or went, but the next thing I remember, I was alongside this collapsible boat again. And there were about half a dozen people standing on it. I climbed on it, and then turned my attention to the ship. The third, if not the second funnel, was still visible. Certainly the third funnel was still visible. The stern was then clear of the water.
4: And the propellers, all visible? Yes, clear of the water, that's my impression. It seems to me the ship would be almost perpendicular.
3: She did eventually attain the absolute perpendicular.
4: When the ship reached that point that you've just described, were many people thrown into the water?
3: That I could not say, my lord.
4: Did you continue
3: watching the afterpart sufficiently to be able to tell us whether the afterpart settled on the water at all? It did not settle on the water. You are confident it did not? Perfectly certain. Your Lordship knows a lot of witnesses have said their impression was the afterpart settled on the water.
4: I have heard that over and over again. That you say is not true. That is not true, my Lord. I was watching her keenly the whole time. I had a difficulty in realising how it could possibly be that the afterpart of the ship righted itself for a moment. Your
3: Lordship may remember, perhaps, that the baker, who was on the ship at this moment we are now dealing with, and was climbing aft, said he heard the rending of metal, and metal breaking.
4: Yes, he was the man who got
3: to the poop. Yes, he climbed right aft. At this moment, he would be uh, on the poop. Now, your evidence is that the ship remains stiff. Yes. Now just carry it on. Did you continue watching her till she disappeared? I did. And just tell us what happened as you saw it. After she reached an angle of 50 or 60 degrees or something about that, there was this rumbling sound, which I attributed to the boilers leaving their beds and crashing down on or through the bulkheads. The ship, at that time, was becoming more perpendicular until finally she attained the absolute perpendicular, somewhere about that position, and then went slowly down. She went down very slowly until the end, and then, after she got so far the after part of the second cabin deck, she of course went down much quicker. You say you saw some six people who had got to this collapsible boat. Were they men? Yes. I think you said they were standing on it. As far as I remember, yes, standing or kneeling. And what, what happened to you? I climbed onto it. Then just tell us what was the course of events after that, from your point of view? There were several people in the water round about us who were struggling toward the boat and swarmed towards the boat and got onto it during the night occasionally. Of course, we could not paddle the boat about, it was absolutely waterlogged. So there are six, and you yourself were there, and others got to it? Yes, as far as I know, during the night. I did not count them. It was merely an estimate from other people. There were nearly 28 or 30 people on the raft in the
4: morning. When were you taken off this collapsible boat?
3: Just after daybreak.
2: Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. This has been something of a mammoth task and I must thank all of the wonderful people who have made it possible. Firstly, Steve Bennett who played Charles Lightoller, John Pluse, who was the Attorney General and Daniel Jameson was John Bingham the Commissioner. None of this would have been possible or practical without those fantastic researchers who transcribed the many hundreds of thousands of words of the Titanic Inquiry. Bob Bonnell, Earl Chapman, Mike Disabato, Vera and John Gillespie, Linda Greaves, Jane Hilbert, Rob Ottmers, Stuart Partridge, Marilyn Powell, Susie Powell, Park Stevenson, Bruce Trank and Bill Wormstead. Thank you all and you can find all of their great work at titanicinquiry.org. Now please make sure you check out our fantastic YouTube channel where you can see a number of important animations concerning the Titanic. A 3D animation based on the ship's original lines and a video that looks specifically at the Titanic's safety equipment. and Very interesting interesting. interesting it is too. This podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. Please do all you can to find out what those wonderful institutions are up to. Uh, The Lloyd's Register Foundation's History and Education Centre is currently uh, releasing some excellent videos from their project Maritime Innovation in Miniature. It's a project to film the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment and it is simply astonishing. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk where I would encourage you all to join up. Not only is it a brilliant place to hear and learn all about the world's maritime history from the very best in the business but it is also a fantastic way to meet like-minded people. Cheerio.